When I was a kid, me and my brother had a paper round each, and uh, we shared a bedroom, and so we shared an alarm clock. And so every morning, the alarm clock went off, and neither of us, I think it's fair to say, were morning people. And so it took us a long time to get out of bed, and there was lots of hitting the snooze button. And the way I remember it, I would get up first, and then, you know, I'd be like nudging him, come on, it's time to go, and he'd be like, oh, one more minute. And then quite often, he would just go, oh, tell him I'm not coming. And I'd be like, no, you tell him yourself. And he'd go, oh, I, I don't feel well, or something like that. And I, I remember that happening all the time. And he listens to the podcast, and so he'll be remembering it differently, I'm sure. But the way I remember it, sometimes he would just send me in and say, tell him I'm not coming. And I would have to go into the paper shop and say, I'm sorry, my brother's not coming today. And I would get shouted at on his behalf. And then I would have to do his paper round as well as mine. And you know, over the months and years that we did paper rounds, that drove me absolutely insane. And it, it just got to the point where I just couldn't take it a single other time, and I snapped. And the alarm clock went off one morning, and then my brother refused to get up, and he was like, oh, tell him I'm not coming. And I, out of the corner of my eye, I saw my, pre my kind of treasured possession, my guitar, and I picked up the guitar by the neck, and I kind of wielded it in the air, and then I slammed it down on my brother's duvet-covered body. And there was the most enormous kind of clang sound, followed by a crack, and then the whole thing snapped in half. And in that moment, I mean, it was a you know, it's like in the middle of the night, noise feels much louder. And so I think probably people on other continents were writing to their local MP and complaining about the noise, but it was really loud. And then I just sat on my bed and I thought, how on earth has it come to this? And I'm surrounded by the pieces of my broken guitar, just thinking, this is just dreadful. And I, I, you know, in that moment, I just felt enormous regret. Now, probably you've never smashed a guitar over anyone's head. But many of us will know what it's like to snap. You know, to, to say things that we wish we could take back, to, um, to, to wish that we could undo the things that we've done, and to feel enormous regret, and to be surrounded by the shattered pieces of broken relationships. I've, talked, I've called this talk, I've called this talk, um, Keeping the Guitar Whole, uh, because what we're gonna look at this morning is, how do we build and maintain strong and healthy relationships and how do we make sure that they never get to the point where in the worst of times we lose the things that are most precious to us and the people that are most precious to us because we just snap in an instant. And we're, we're going through a series at the moment in the story of Joseph and uh, this is the moment after 17 years of relational difficulty, this is the moment when Joseph's brothers snap. And so we're going to read from Genesis chapter 37, from verse 12. Now Joseph's brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem, and Israel said to Joseph, As you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I'm going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to them, Go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks, and bring word back to me. Then he sent him off from the valley of Hebron. When Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around in the fields and asked him, What are you looking for? 
He replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they're grazing their flocks? They've moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben, when Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into this cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from, from them and take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Joseph said to his brothers, Judas, Judas said to his brothers, What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, The boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in the blood. They took the ornate robe back to their father and said, We found this. Examine it to see whether it's your son's robe. He recognized it and said, It is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. Before we look at this story in particular, I just wanted to say a little something about this series that we're doing on relationships in general, because I don't know about you and how it's going down with you, but I, I just know in my own spirit that God is doing something quite precious in our church family in this whole realm of relationships. And um, I, I probably won't articulate it very well, but I just sense that there's a, a sense of God's approval over this uh, season and over this series and a sense of his grace on, on all of these uh, talks that we're doing on relationships and I'm not saying that we'll look back you know for many years to come we'll remember how brilliant Chuck's talks were or anything like that I'm not that's not what I'm saying what I'm saying is I think we'll look back in years to come and say what a sweet season in God that was when he challenged us about the way that we lived our relationships and I just feel like it's almost like there's an amnesty, like, a, like, like there's a window of opportunity that God has created for each one of us to 
reflect on each one of our relationships and to bring our kind of matrix of relationships to God and just say, God, please will you help me with my broken relationships? Please will you help strengthen the friendships and the, the family relationships that I have? Please will you restore marriages in this season? And I would just encourage you, I was saying to the church staff the other day, it's almost as if there's like a river of God's spirit running through our church at the moment. And whoever kind of dips their toes in the water, it's, it's like they're immediately compelled to do something with their relationships. And so I just want to really encourage you as your pastor to just go with the flow. You know, to, go, to, to see what God's doing, to perceive what it is he's doing, and to just do whatever you can to bring all of your relationships to God and just ask him to speak into them. And I just have real faith that over the next season we're going to see marriages restored and, you know, uh, parent-child relationships restored and redeemed and all kinds of other friendships strengthened and marriages strengthened. And please will you just listen to God and then seek to obey him in every area. And I just think probably what will happen is that there'll be a flurry of emails and text messages and phone calls and meetups for coffee and different things Probably that is the result of what God's doing, and I just would love it if we could do that. Okay. All right, so uh, in lots of ways, this story is the kind of how not to do relationships, isn't it? You know, how to ruin your relationships to the extent that you, you know, the next 20 years of your life lives in regret. Probably it's best if we don't look at this passage from the point of view of, you know, a how-to of how to ruin your relationships. And so I thought what we'd do is we'd kind of turn it on its head a bit and we'd draw the principles from this passage and then we'd seek to do the exact opposite. So that's pretty much what we're going to do. The first thing is if you want to keep your guitar whole, you should celebrate your brother's blessing. In the verse immediately before the passage that we read, which is in verse 11, it says this, his brothers were jealous of him but his father kept the matter in mind. The cause of this absolutely horrible event in the life of this family is jealousy. And they, uh, they honestly believe that Joseph is getting all the breaks in life. You know, he's getting all of his, their father's affection. He's getting all of the great gifts and all of the great clothes. And, you know, there they are in the middle of nowhere trying to find some grass for their sheep. And where is Joseph? He's with his dad. You know, he gets to be at home with his dad, presumably playing Xbox and watching Match of the Day, and there they are, out at work, trying to find some grass for their sheep. It wasn't fair. And they were absolutely consumed with jealousy. And it just reminded me of this, a similar kind of situation in Genesis chapter 4, where Cain and Abel, they both offer their sacrifices to God. And it says that God favored Abel's sacrifice over Cain's. And in that moment, Cain is absolutely furious and he's consumed with jealousy to the point where God says to him this. He says, beware, sin is crouching at your door. Jealousy is a very dangerous thing. And whenever we foster that jealousy, that bitterness, that resentment in our hearts, sin is crouching at the door. There are two things, two truths that is very important that we embrace if we're going to foster healthy relationships. The first one is this. Life isn't fair. I don't know whether you've noticed that, but life isn't fair. And actually, throughout the whole of history, people have said, oh, it's not fair. In fact, in the Old Testament, 
there are a bunch of people who said the same thing, and, and Jeremiah is one of them. Jeremiah, uh, where is it? Chapter 12, verse 1. He says, why does the way of the wicked prosper? It's like, why do good things happen to bad people? That's not fair. And then he goes on to say, why do bad things happen to good people? It's not fair. Listen, life isn't fair. We live in a fallen, broken world where it's unjust. You know, bad things happen to good people. Good things happen to bad people. That's the first thing. Life isn't fair. Second truth, very important to embrace, is that God blesses whoever he chooses. We have to allow God to be God. And we have to allow him to be able to pour out his blessing on our brothers and to celebrate it. I'm thinking about lots of teaching of Jesus, for example, where he tells these parables where it's like God's grace, his favor rests on certain individuals. For example, you know the story about there are a bunch of people who go and work for a landlord and some of them have been slaving away all day and they get a penny. And then some people, they turn up at like five to five and they do five minutes work and they get a penny. God has to be allowed to bless whoever he wants to bless. So often from our perspective, it's painful to see what other people have got, isn't it? You know, we might see our friend has got the family that we've always longed for or the, the life partner that we're so desperate for or our brother has got the house that we would long for. So often from our perspective, it's really painful, but we must beware because sin is crouching at the door. That's why scripture again and again encourages us to just do everything we possibly can to avoid jealousy and envy and resentment finding a root and you know putting down roots in our lives. For example, 1 Corinthians 13, <clears throat> that famous um, passage that we always read at weddings, says this, love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy. Or James, James is really harsh. He says this, if you harbor bitter envy in your hearts, don't boast about it because it's earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Wow. 1 Peter 2 verse 1, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, envy and slander of every kind. And so it's really important if we're going to keep our relationships healthy, that we take all jealousy, all envy, out the back and give it a really good kicking. And the way that we do that is to do the opposite. So instead of envying our brother's blessing, what we actually choose to do is to celebrate our brother's blessing. To say, God, you've blessed my brother. Hallelujah. Thank you, God. You're such a good God that you've blessed my brother. I keep my guitar whole when I celebrate my brother's blessing. <clears throat> Secondly, I keep my guitar whole when I keep short accounts. I don't know if you can remember this far back, but there was a time not that long ago when the selection of soft drinks available to us was quite limited. You know, it was like orange squash, orange juice if you were really pushing the boat out, maybe apple juice for something a bit more exotic, ginger beer, fizzy pop, or water. 
tea or coffee. That was pretty much it. Whereas now you've got like elderflower and pomegranate this and all of it. You know, it's all very exotic. Um, that's because we're living in the age of the smoothie. Do you remember a time when a smoothie was like a, a thing that none of us knew about? It wasn't actually that long ago. There was a, a newspaper article which I came across and I've, I've looked it up and I found it again about um, innocent smoothies. You know those smoothies you can buy in Boots? Or uh, other shops sell them as well. <coughs> um, there was a moment when they had to recall 100,000 bottles of banana and strawberry smoothie because they were exploding. And what was happening was that, that uh, you know, just in the middle of the night or even during the day in a supermarket, suddenly a whole pallet or a whole shelf of smoothies would just explode. And um, one supermarket manager who was called Roger Sutton, he described how a jet of juice was propelled three meters into the air at his shop in Cheltenham. And he said this, I heard an almighty bang from the fridge. It sounded like a gun going off. You could see the lid bulging with the pressure. When my assistant opened it, the liquid flew out with tremendous force. The spray went absolutely everywhere. It even reached the ceiling. And the problem turned, to be, turned out to be naturally occurring kind of microscopic bacteria that w were normal, but they were just enough to create over time fermentation, which created just enough gas to create the explosion. The point is, little things, when left, become big things. And little niggles, when left, become big relational problems. And so it's really, really important that we keep short accounts. Our dear friend, Paul Reed in Belfast, he says this, and I absolutely love it. This is like his life's mantra, go ugly early. I love that. What he's saying is, if there's an issue with your brother or your friend or your sister, deal with it. Don't let it fester, because over time it will build up resentment and it will cause more problems in the long term. If you want to keep your guitar whole, then take personal responsibility. That's number three. On the 9th of June, 2014, there was a lady. She was called Jennifer Devereaux, and she boarded a flight between Boston and New York. And on the flight, she had her two little kids with her. Uh, everything was going normally. The flight kind of, um, the, the aircraft uh, starts to move away from the gate towards the runway. And then there's some kind of a problem with the air, air traffic control. And so uh, the captain comes over the uh, intercom and he says, I'm really sorry, ladies and gentlemen. We'll just be about 45 minutes sat here on the tarmac and then we'll be able to take off. And a few minutes later, Jennifer's three-year-old little girl needed the toilet. And so uh, she, she just, you know, she thought, well, it's, we're going to be sat here for ages. So, so she took her little girl, and she started to walk towards the toilet, and the stewardess went crazy. And she came running up, and she was like, what do you think you're doing? There, there's a, uh, uh, you know, the captain's put the, the uh, no seatbelt light, light thingy on. You can't move. You need to get back in your seat. And she's like, but my little girl needs the toilet. I'm sorry, madam, you have to sit down. And so she went to sit down, and then, of course, about... 20 minutes later, this poor little girl wet herself. And so uh, Jennifer Devereaux pressed the 
call button and ask for the stewardess to come over. The stewardess comes over, she says, Look, my little girl's now wet herself. Have you got some tissues or something like that? And the stewardess went away and didn't come back. And so in the end, Jennifer stands up and she thinks, well, I've got something in my bag. And she goes to go in the overhead locker. And, of course, the stewardess comes immediately right back now. And she's going crazy again. She's going, listen, madam, this is absolutely outrageous. You know what the deal is. You're not supposed to move. And now you're standing up. This is a real problem. You need to sit down right now. And so that's what happens. She sits down. And then a few minutes later on, the captain comes over the intercom. And this is an absolutely true story. And he says, ladies and gentlemen, I'm afraid we've got to return back to the gate. We have a non-compliant passenger on board that, that has to be offloaded off the plane. And of course, Jennifer Devereaux realizes she is the non-compliant passenger. Uh, she was interviewed by a newspaper later on, and she said this, why can't we just treat each other with kindness and decency like human beings? The point is, the employees of their airline developed a pack mentality and they behaved in a way that they would never have behaved if they'd have stopped for a moment and just considered what their actions were. And we see that kind of pack mentality happen all the time in life, don't we? We see it happening with giant corporations who behave in ways that no moral, rational human being would ever consider to be appropriate. Or we see and politicians claiming expenses, you know, all colluding together to, to fiddle their expenses in a way which if they were just stopping for a moment to consider their actions on their own, that they would never do. Or we see communities that turn on one person or, or a family. And of course, we're seeing that in the story of Joseph. Verse 18, all of the brothers are there and, and between them all as a pack, they plan to kill Joseph. And then in verse 19, they say to each other, come, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. But later on in verse 30, you see Reuben is absolutely distraught at what they've done. He says, where can I turn now? And the, the message version just says, what am I going to do? And you can see the devastation that's caused later on in verse, 30, in verse 34, the devastation that's caused to their father Jacob. It's so easy to get carried along with the pack and to find ourselves turning on people in a way that if we just stop for a moment, we would never do. And so as Christians, it's so important that we bring ourselves before God and say, God, I know what they're planning to do. I can see where this is all going. What would you have me do? And we take personal responsibility for our actions before God. We refuse to just do what everyone else is doing. And we just say, God, what would you have me do? To keep your guitar whole, you should choose peace. And um, my kids absolutely crack me up. They're, they... They're absolutely hilarious. I think most kids are. When my children were really small, I'm sure pretty much all children do this, but you know, one of our kids would come home from school and they'd be snotty and red-faced and look completely disheveled and their bag would be hanging off their shoulder and they'd be sort of, <gasps> you know, struggling to take breath. 
and they're saying, you know, oh, I've fallen out with little Johnny or Barbara or Melissa or whatever, and, you know, and, and it's all gone wrong, and, and I'm never going to speak to them ever again. And so then you're like, oh, no, this is dreadful. I want my child to be happy. You know, what can we do about this? And so you, you spend the whole evening life coaching. You know, you're like, well, what could you do? And what could you say if they say this to you? And how could you, you know, as a Christian, what does Jesus say about this situation? And so you spend the whole evening trying to fix it and put it all back together, praying it through. And then you hardly sleep a week, uh, a wink at night because you're so worried about this. You pack them off to school the next morning with a prayer. You spend all day thinking, Lord, please don't let this be the beginning of just a really miserable childhood and school experience for my child. And then they come home from school and they kind of skip through the door. And you're like, oh, how was it today? Fine. What about, what about like Melissa and your, the situation with Melissa? What about Melissa? Well, remember yesterday how you were really upset and you just, you know, inconsolable? Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. And, <laughs> you know, children find it really easy to, to kind of forgive and forget and move on and to forget that they've ever said, I'll never speak to that person ever again. But as adults, when we say, I'll never speak to that person ever again, we don't forget. And actually, we find it easy to just cut them dead. I'll never speak to that person ever again. And that is, in fact, what our society recommends, isn't it? If that relationship is broken down, move on. In fact, you can see that that's what Joseph's brothers are thinking. It's like, let's, let's fix this thing so that we never have to see his face again. And it's like, well, if he dies, if he doesn't die, it doesn't really matter as long as we never have to see him again. That's option one, cut them dead. The second option is make them suffer, which in a way is what Reuben suggests in verse 22. He says, don't shed any blood. Throw him into this cistern here in the wilderness. And then we find out that his plan is, let's leave him in there without any water for quite a while, and then hopefully he'll learn his lesson, and then we can just take him back home to dad and everything will be all right. So option one is, cut them dead. Option two is, make them suffer. Now, obviously, none of us here, we're all Christians. You know, we would never do anything like, we would never cut anyone off. You know, we, we would never just make them suffer. But if just you know, one of our friends were to do that at some point in the future, and probably it won't be anyone here, it'll be someone in Inverurie or in Stonehaven. So, let's just focus on Hebrews 12, verse 14. Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. You know, we might like to pursue all kinds of avenues of causing people to suffer but the way of Christ is the way of forgiveness and reconciliation and peace and so as Christians the only choice available to us is I will choose peace I will make peace number five keep it small pretty soon the number of accomplices in this situation is growing, right? So, uh, first of all, it was just the brothers, and then you get these passing, passing Midianites, 
and they kind of get brought into the situation. And, and really, they are just like the ancient Near Eastern equivalent of the Tesco delivery man. You know, that's pretty much their job. Uh, and they've probably got like 11 other stops to make before they get home to their wife and kids that night. And then suddenly, they're being drawn into this situation. And they, they, you know, they, they had no intention of taking little Joseph off. But now they have. We find it so easy, don't we, to draw people into our disputes. You know, I'm just telling you this just so that you can pray. Or do you have any idea what that woman has done? I love the simplicity of Jesus' teaching on this subject. In Matthew 18, verse 15, he says this. If your brother or sister sins, go and point it out just between the two of you just between the two of you. And you're like, okay, yeah, but I've done that. You know, we, we had a discussion. It didn't go very well. Is it all right now if I take Gary and Barry and Harry and Mary and Martha and Arthur and Rita and Peter and Don and John and the Tesco delivery guy and we go and sort this guy out? No, it isn't because the next verse says, but if they will not listen, take one or two others along. Do you see, Jesus says, keep it small. Keep it small. And the last one is, look every gift horse in the mouth. The other thing that occurs to me about the Ishmaelites is that wasn't it so convenient that they just happened to be passing at the moment where they were looking to get rid of Joseph? It's as if someone has kind of lined them up, especially for that moment, and ordained for, uh, ordained for them to take Joseph away. And I was thinking about it. It reminds me of the story of Jonah. So there's Jonah. He's been told by God to go and take a message to Nineveh. And he says, I'm not going. And in fact, not only does he not go, but he goes in the opposite direction. He's running away from God. He's in complete rebellion against God. And as he's running towards Tarshish, he gets to Joppa. And wouldn't you know it, but in that moment, there is a ship heading towards Tarshish. I mean, what an incredible coincidence. And you can imagine that Jonah was going, the Lord provides. You know, or, or it was meant to be. That's just isn't that incredible? It's just life has just provided me the perfect opportunity that must be God. But the point is, it turns out the devil also provides. And you know what? He has a whole sh fleet of ships heading to Tarshish. In that moment, the very moment of their sin, wouldn't you know it? There's the vehicle. There are the Ishmaelites. And I've seen it again and again and again that somebody is greasing the path for broken relationships and for family breakdown and marriage breakdown. That, that, that there's a happy coincidence of circumstances that just seem to fall just at that moment in order that relationships would break down. You know, you might hear somebody say, well, I just happened to miss my train. And you know, I never miss my train. But in that moment, the girl from the office missed her train too. And she never misses her train either. And we just happened to meet in the same bar while we were waiting for the next train. And as we were saying, do you know, we're both passionate about stamp collecting. 
And you know, as we were discussing stamps, it turns out that she's in an unhappy marriage, and I'm in an unhappy marriage. And it just feels like God has brought us together. Well, maybe it's not God. Or I fell out with somebody in my small group, and I was really stressed about it. And wouldn't you know it, that day there was a leaflet through the door for another church. God is calling me to leave this situation and go on to another church. God isn't the only one who provides. Provision and circumstance is not the proof of the will of God. And let me just finish with this. You know, for many of us, by this point in the series, we'll be thinking, do you know what, this all sounds great, but it's really hard. And for many of us, we'll be thinking, how am I actually supposed to do this when I've got the enemy waging war against me and he's trying full frontal assault and he's also doing very subtle temptation in all kinds of different ways. And also, I've got society against me because society is telling me that, well, just cut those relationships off, just start again. And then also, well, to be honest, I'm just a broken person and I carry all kinds of baggage with me into all of my relationships. So this is just too hard. To which I say, let's give thanks that he that is in us is greater than he that is in the world. And again and again in Scripture, particularly in the New Testament, what you see is that the Holy Spirit is passionate about fellowship, about unity, about bringing uh, people together. Just one example would be the grace. You know, when we say the grace in church to one another, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And so our response to this being really difficult and feeling completely like everything is kind of targeted against us, our response is, Lord, I need more of your spirit. This is too hard, but I know that your power working in me can help me to build bridges, to forgive people that I don't want to forgive, to bring reconciliation to relationships that feel completely lost and broken. Your spirit is enough for me. God is with us. God is for us. God is enough for us. And God is within us. Let's stand, Sharon.